Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Today we speak with Joe Katarovic, who is the CEO of Cobalt Blue Holdings. They're an ASX Cobalt developer. Now, fairly rocky times at the moment, and Cobalt itself is quite an opaque market. So we discussed some of the supply demand issues in the market and how Joe thinks that they can overcome that, especially with some of the strategic partner conversations that they're having at the moment. We discussed financials, financing and into the future and how they hope to stand out in the space. Um, we also discussed their Broken Hill asset in some detail. So have a listen, hope you enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Joe, how are you, sir? I'm very well, Matthew. I should say good, good evening in your case. You're, you're uh, speaking to us from Australia. So we're going to talk today about Cobalt Holdings, um, but you quite you previously uh, kindly went through the Cobalt market for us. So we're going to put that up on the screen for people to uh, look at as well. Definitely worth uh, watching that one as well. But why don't we kick off today with a one-minute summary on Cobalt Blue Holdings, and then we'll pick it up from there. Cobalt Blue Holdings is a company that was formed in late 2016. We listed in 17, and we've made tremendous progress since. Our flagship is the Broken Hill Cobalt Project. We've got some innovative processing technologies and some very, very strong commercial relationships that will endeavour to bring that into production. Brilliant. Okay, thanks for that. For viewers of our show, um, they look back at what's been happening with Cobalt over the past couple of years. You know, it was sort of darling sort of two, three years ago, and Prices have come way off. Um, it's a complex market. I think you explained that in the, the previous conversation we had. But is it worth just you spending a little bit of time explaining the sort of structures of the market first? Because it allows us to kind of maybe set the scene, as it were. It's a pretty small market. So the cobalt market today, in metal equivalents, about 130,000 tonnes. Um, I might have mentioned to you last time to give you some scale. The entire cobalt market would fit into one bulk size uh, carrier of coal or iron ore. So it's pretty small. It's very difficult to track because it comes from multiple sources, particularly out of Africa. So once it goes through into the processing and the refining side of the business, which is typically based in Asia, it's quite opaque. And that's where some of the ethical cobalt and contamination of cobalt issues comes through. Today, that market is about 55% destined towards batteries. And and as a segment, um, batteries will be by far the largest growth area, um, particularly the cobalt sulfate market. So that gives you a bit of idea of size and opacity. The other key issue is um, whilst it's quoted on the LME, the LME is not a reflective price, uh, I I think, because the LME is quoted on a handful of metal in in effectively in in global warehouses, but doesn't reflect the day-to-day commercial price. And what do you mean by that? Because that, that's quite a big statement to make. Um, and it's also hard for people to understand who rely on things like the LME for you know, pricing around the market. Look, I think the LME is a fantastic benchmark and a, and a liquid and dynamic benchmark for major metals, copper, nickel, aluminium, huge holdings. And the LME is liquid enough to buy, provide both speculators and natural buyers and traders of the, of the product. In cobalt terms, there's only about 600 tonne of cobalt at any one time in in one of the LME warehouses, so it's pretty small. That's cobalt destined for financial purposes only. It's not trading stock. The real price, which is a company-to-company set price, is taken by Fast Markets, formerly known as Metals Bulletin, 
across both Asia and Europe. And that's a daily company to company, mark to market style process. So really there's no way to hedge it um, effectively. There's no way to play that. You have to be an industry participant in order to take physical or secure paperwork over the physical, have some part or skin in it. So it, are we saying because it's not a big enough market, people aren't really paying, well, the market, it's hard for the market to uh, track, uh, quantify. I mean, so how do you know what the total volume is? I mean, where, where does that actually come from? You talked about it, it, it's equivalent to one container full. Yeah. As with most commodities, the supply side is the regime of consultants and industry specialists. So they can see the supply side. They know that roughly 70% of it is based or made in the Congo, about 75 to 80% overall in Africa. They can keep track of that. And individually, you can look at uh, annual reports of companies such as China, Moly, Glencore, et cetera, and you can get a good feel for what's being produced. Less so day to day. So in the, in, in the next quarter, what are they going to produce is a much harder number. But once it goes into the processing, uh, in other words, it's sold and, and, and revenue is created, once it goes into the processing and refining side, it's much more opaque, much more difficult to keep track of. And it's that's when the problems of end users, and I'll pick on, say, Apple or Teslas of the world, trying to source ethical cobalt is a problem. Right. So, where again, just helping people understand the, the, the market here is it's volatile, right? You know, it, from what you're saying, it shouldn't be. The, the, there's not a lot of supply. So, is the demand side where the volatility comes from? Or is it because of people concerned about the ethical component and they haven't yet found a replacement for that supply component? It's a great question because I think it's a question that needs to be asked to understand. I believe it's volatile because it's got such a small supply base. If you take any commodity and even flex it up by, um, you know, what is in normal terms, 10,000, 20,000 tonnes, you're not going to scratch copper. You're not going to scratch nickel. But if you do that on a 130,000 tonne base, you're going to materially stress a very, very low production base. So I think all of your, all of those idiosyncrasies that we know about cobalt, the volatility, if you like, stem from the fact the supply base is small and is constrained. And as a result, and, and constrained not just because it's coming from a handful of major mines, constrained because it's a byproduct of copper or nickel. So if copper or nickel prices are depressed, there's less cobalt units coming out. Along comes batteries, along comes super alloys, and they might grow at 20% per annum on a 10,000 tonne base, but that's two, four, 6,000 tonne on a 130K base. That's a material uplift. And that's what we saw both on the ramp up into 2018 with somewhat speculative buying in anticipation of EV growth. And then on the ramp down as the reality of further supply or flexing of supply out of, um, out of the Congo measured up with somewhat disappointing EV take up as particularly as um, subsidies and other grants were taken away uh, out of China in particular. Okay, brilliant. Okay, so like I say, again, people should refer back to our previous uh, interview or conversation to get a bit more detail because I think you did you know, get into a bit more detail in that. But so... Given the complexities of the market in terms of the supply spike demand component and given the size of the market it being small, what possessed you to get into the world of cobalt as a business opportunity? I think um, you, 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 <laughs> it's a good question. You can only be the master of your domain for so, for so many different inputs and ultimately um, 
what we had was an asset at, at Broken Hill, which was large, relatively low grade, uh, and there's no doubt of that, relative to global grades. But we took a fresh set of eyes on that, on that resource and said, hang on, the gold industry has pyrite. Refractory gold is very common. So overseas, particularly in Latin America, they were liberating gold from these very hard to break crystals, these pyrite crystals. And so we adopted a very similar approach and said, if it works for gold and copper in Latin America, well, why can't it work for cobalt? And so what it did is it did two big things for us. One is it achieved a very high rate of recovery. So we're getting 90% of the cobalt in the ground as a payable product. Now show me who else is doing that. And the other thing is by creating elemental sulfur as a byproduct, not sulfuric acid, our capital costs are far lower and we've got a product that's a low hazmat and can be easy to transport. If you make sulfuric acid, you pretty much have to sell it next to the customer or you have to be next to the customer. So we avoided the environmental, the capital costs and created huge um, uh, recoveries. You asked me why we got into it. We could see that opportunity on this market of, of cobalt. Now, yes, it's volatile. Yes, it's opaque. But if you have a sound commercial strategy to get into business and some very good technical people which show you how to create those products, I think you're on the front foot. Okay. So we're getting into the technical there. I want to kind of work out what's going on, on up here. So you set out, because, you, you know, you, again, you, you, you weren't always in, in this space. You've come from outside, you've looked in and gone, right, I think we've got an angle here. So can we talk about your business plan? What did you set out to try to achieve? And do you think you're still on track to do that? I think we've evolved. When we listed, and, and I think all companies that list with an asset that they have to add value to, um, sell a dream. They're dream sellers. So if you IPO, you're selling a dream. I want to make this much product into this fantastic market. And look, we're a fraction of the value of the incumbents. What happened to us very quickly during scoping studies, so within seven or eight months of listing, we uncovered a process that would create ultimately cobalt at somewhere around $10 US C1 cash cost. Now that's a very technical description, but basically a very low cash cost. So our evolution went leaps and bounds from effectively a traditional process such as roasting where acid is made and lower recoveries to a much more advanced process already established for gold but not used for cobalt where we could make some fantastic margins and then effectively that allowed us to focus more and more on this on this uh, uh, set of outcomes on top of that at my background and, and my colleagues uh, we've got an investment banking background i was head of resources at deutsche um, and so we could see that in order to make this a success, we need to get some very big commercial partners in the door up front. In other words, um, go out there and see what the battery making world, um, who is who in that particular area, and how can we interact with that market with this product. And so our relationships with the likes of LGI and with Mitsubishi have actually shaped our development. If a battery maker wants to see a certain style of product, then we should listen to that. Can we make that product? Can we make that purity? The battery maker wants to see certain milestones achieved in the feasibility study on the way to production. We should be able to appease that. So if you look at our development history and looking forward, it's ironic, but we're less focused on the stock market. We're more focused on the commercial market. Okay. And what do you think the implication is there for people investing in your company? You think they're going to get a better outcome because of 
the way that you're viewing this. I, I, I get the agility. You know, you are able to segue or pivot according to what you think is going to deliver the best outcome technically for you and what your partners want. But what's that mean for shareholders? What's the impact? I look at it this way. The biggest single risk point of any miner in development is the ability to create a feasibility study, A, that's economic, B, that passes all the environmental uh, approvals and other hurdles, but then is bankable. In other words, a, a, a bank will come and lend funds towards it, particularly in that onerous ramp-up period of, of year zero through to year three and year four. So for us, we could see that hurdle coming up. Tons of mining companies produce FS studies all the time. They're, they're a dime a dozen. But how many mining companies get into construction and ultimately production? That's where you've got to transcend from being a technical approach. In other words, how can I just deliver these milestones without necessarily looking two steps ahead to looking two steps ahead and saying, how can I bring some of this money in? And there's lots of money out there making batteries. There's far less money. And I've seen some quotes as the ratio of 10 to one, $10 um, of invested capital making batteries to $1 of invested capital making the, the, the precursor or the raw materials for batteries. So we're looking forward to getting to that stage. So that's how we think about it. Okay, okay. I mean, that that's, it seems to be reflective of your background, you, you know, Deutsche Bank, etc. I know you've got a technical background as well, but, you know, that is influencing the way that you're, you're going about thinking about what you need to focus on. So that says to me, somewhere in the background, you've got a team of people that have cracked this technically you, you know you talked about you know how how can you make what is a sort of large but low, low grade operation work at an economic level so what has happened in the in the background how did you overcome those hurdles to allow you to be able to say i feel confident i'm going to be able to deliver a bankable feasibility study a big a big answer to that or a big part of the answer there is that we took people who have experience in those refractory gold and refractory copper style laws and brought them onto our technical team. So I've got a technical team that's done this before. I've got a technical team that's managed these processes in South America. I've got a technical team that has managed pilot and demonstration scale plants, which we can talk about shortly. Um, so a team that's done it before, combined with a team that can, as I said, had the foresight to, to understand what the commercial market wants, I think is a big part of our offering. Well, it's a huge bit. And it's the one. I, it's the bit I want to get onto because it's it's great talking about you know the financials and the hopes of getting you know bankable feasibility started. But you need to prove it works. So you're you've gone past PEA. You're on a PFS the PFS stage at the moment, and in eighteen months, uh, hopefully a feasibility study. Right? Um, how have you demonstrated the economics of this? How have you demonstrated? Because I think somewhere in here we, I've read about a, a, a pilot plant. Where are you with that? Sure. So the PFS was the first time we created an ore. The ore then allows you to create these economics. So I, I'll put it to you this way in, in, in two terms. There's the capital costs of getting into business, and then there's the operating costs of, of being in business. On a capital cost front, because we're a pure cobalt mine, in other words, we're not creating equipment or plant to extract nickel, uh, copper, and other byproducts. We've got one mineral, one metal. So all of our capital costs are compressed. The other key part on our capital costs is that with a simple gravity circle and circuit and, and flotation uh, scavenger, we're effectively just mining um, and then putting slight processing into our ore and then returning 80% of the waste before it even hits our refinery. 
So our refinery is one fifth the size of our mining operation. By way of contrast, if you're a nickel laterite, you're pretty much mining and processing the entirety of, of, of the ore body. So by having one fifth the size or scale of the, um, of the refinery, not only do we compress materially our capital costs, but that leads me to my second point, our operating costs. We've achieved a $12 US C1 cash cost. We're very confident of achieving uh, a target of $10 US C1 cash cost. What does that mean? It means that the against a tw uh, 25 year correction, 50 year average price in cobalt of 25 US dollars, 10 bucks is a pretty big margin. Even today, in the midst of this, uh, this uh, temporary uh, cobalt glut that we're in, in the midst of coronavirus, cobalt today is 18 bucks a pound. If we were up and running today, we'd be making a fantastic margin, even in this depressed market. So on one hand, low hurdles to build in terms of low capital costs. The other hand, an economic resilience to not only make a good margin, but operate all the way through the cycle, even at low cobalt prices. And they're the two keys to our project. Okay, so pilot plants, um, you're, you're, you're taking it you know, up a notch at that level. How do you finance that? What's your expectation at the end of that process? Yeah, so I'll just, um, just take a step back as to why we're doing the pilot, then I'll talk about the, the financing, if you like. So this year for us, outside of the ore reserve update, is a two-step proof of metallurgical processing. Step one, pilot, we'll be doing that shortly. We've already got equipment coming to site. In fact, we're, this week we're starting construction. We hope to have our first 100 kilograms of this sulfate product out by July. That kicks off a global partner uh, sample partner program. So we've identified the top 10 precursor uh, consumers or makers in the world, which is part of the battery industry. And what we want to do is ship them product so that we catch their attention. The second step, a much bigger demonstration plant, will allow us to ship 100 to 150 kilograms of product from which these um, players can then make batteries. Why is that important? Because we're a $2 Australian company. What we want to do is have a pre-acceptance test uh, process with some of the bigger uh, battery makers in the world. And that'll allow us over the next 12 to 18 months to get on their preferred suppliers list. So by the time we go in towards a bankable feasibility study to our earlier conversation, I can say to a bank, look, here is the top 10 producers and uh, consumers of this product in the world. Here are some guaranteed offtake agreements. Here are the market prices you can lend against them. It gives us credit worthiness. The other part of your question is I'm gonna finance that. I'm a child of the market. So in terms of getting through pilot and, and demo this year, yes, we'll, we'll need to go back to the market. Okay, and, and what sort of quantum are we talking about so people can understand the, the, the sort of dilution that you may, may be talking about? Or what would the structure of that be? Because it's not necessarily all equity, or, or would it be? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So the pilot's already undergoing construction, as is. So a lot of the, the funds have been committed. The long lead, importantly, the long lead time stuff's already on site. So while some of that specialist equipment was made in China, we were fortunate enough to be ordering last August. And that was on the boat effectively in January pre-coronavirus. So a lot of that stuff's done. Um, the, uh, the pilot plant itself will cost us just around about $1.5 to $2 million to conduct and run. We've got 2.1 on the balance sheet. Uh, longer term, the demonstration plant is a scale up. We will need to come to the market over that. But the key for us is the pilot plant will show off the capabilities of us in the process, allow us to ship that product and importantly, allow those commercial partners to start to sniff around and potentially put their foot on either some of the project equity or a pathway to that equity. 
What I want to do as a CEO is wean myself off the stock market, wean myself off dilutionary raises, and ultimately not even look at the share price because it'll look after itself and get into, as I said, a commercial relationship, deliver an FS, and get into the stock So your preference is um, equity or pre-selling equity in a way. That's that's what your preference is with a strategic partner or offtake partner. Yeah, yeah, I I think that's that's right. So an equity partner has to bring with him the ability to backstop a certain amount of of offtake, but we're prepared for that offtake to be greater than the equity share. In other words, the equity partner can bring their credit worthiness to the table and allow us to secure those initial vital funds to get into production. Um, beyond that point, of, beyond that initial three to four years of production, we've got much, much more flexibility. Okay, so let's talk about some of the numbers here. So the demonstration plant would be obviously a, a, a significantly larger prospect for you. How much money would that require? Well, the demonstration plant is a stepping stone. It's probably another three to four million. It's not a, it's not a huge okay. amount of money. Yeah, yeah, it's not. Look, um, whilst we're creating a, an asset, that will allow us to prove up our own project, will allow us to prove up neighbouring um, feeder pits effectively to become part of the project. We also have the Cobb Partnerships business, which is that deployment of IP. So a lot of the demonstration part will actually be, be paid for by our partners. We have had four partners so far come into the project, um, local neighbours of ours in Broken Hill, two projects in, in Concurry, Mount Isa, where they have similar cobalt in pyrite and copper in pyrite style sulfides and cobaltites. And more recently, I was mining the Carapatina project in South Australia, which is a copper, gold, and cobalt in pyrite. It's um, very conservative for us to use that test work arrangements to allow partners to contribute towards those. Okay, so it's, I'm, I'm, I'm loving all the theory of how you get there. You obviously know what you want to do and who you need to get on board to be able to you know get you get you to the point where you've got a demonstration plant which is you know producing in the quantities that you need but between now and then you talked about your your balance sheet having two odd million bucks on it how are you doing for you know regular cash gna i mean what's the burn rate there um the irony in this situation where a lot of miners are going slow because they're living hand to mouth we have pre-positioned ourselves with a balance sheet to go through the pilot plant stage. Effectively, we can make our next deliverable. And what, what are those deliverables? An updated series of project economics, which we think will showcase the, the, the long life and low cost, uh, and the pilot. The pilot opens commercial doors. And then the pilot allows us, with respect to the partnership business, to open funding doors from partners. The more funding we can secure from commercial partners, the less we need to go to the market. Another point I should make is we've been very successful at a federal government level to secure funds. So we're part of the CRCP projects area, so the Cooperative Research Centre Projects um, grant scheme from the Australian government, whereby they've funded us $2.5 million, which by the way is still incoming money, um, to help us build the demonstration plant I talked about before. So that's federal money. They can see the innovative process we've got and they can see its application to not just our project, but broader Australia. Okay, so do you, I mean, it all sounds like smooth sailing, the way you're describing it. So, what are the barriers that you're trying to manage, or risks that you're trying to mitigate before the end of the you know completion of the pilot plant phase? For us, the only real risks is just timelines. I mean, for example, we've already ordered our long lead equipment, but with the virus, you know, is there a widget that we're going to be short? We don't think so. We've stratified our orders 
pretty well. We're a very disciplined company, particularly when it comes to spending cash. Um, so we're quite confident that the uh, items that we've yet to order are locally available in the Broken Hill or Adelaide area, if you like. So that's one risk, timeline. Um, other risks really are more of uh, affect the go slow or, you know, will the cobalt market, for example, be, be much more negative in the next six months? Will that mean that, for example, that uh, the appetite for commercial engagement or the appetite through the co-partnerships business? Uh, longer term may, may wane, but longer term, we're very confident that the cobalt price will at least meet its 50-year average. And at that price, we're making a fantastic margin. And some of our partners with additional metals such as copper and gold will be making supreme margins. Okay. And, and, and are you under any pressure from these strategic partners to, you know, get, you know, develop a certain way or to slow down or to speed up? I mean, because obviously every, everyone in the market at the moment is under a lot of pressure. The supply chains are in China, you know, broken, people are saying. So, you know, what sort of what sort of phone calls have you been getting in the last couple of weeks? From partners, we're not... Okay, let me... Let me stratify partners. One is the Cobb Partnerships business, so test work. They're people ringing us. So it's not a cold call. We're not putting uh, a product out in the market. Typically, we'll go to a technical seminar. So we do a lot of technical work. And um, for example, uh, the South Australian opportunity was a technical seminar where uh, a metallurgist put his hand up and said, hey, that's a very similar law to what we've got. And we're putting that out to waste. So a waste stream, you saying you can commercialize that. So those commercial partners are very receptive. And indeed, whilst gold prices remain elevated, those all bodies get a lot of attention. The other side is the, the cobalt sulfate, the Broken Hill Cobalt Project commercial partners. They're typically very long dated trading houses or, or battery makers. These are guys who understand that we're not going to be in production before about 2024, but we're large, we're stable and we're low cost. So they're chipping away at us to get comfort. Their point of comfort will be when we can prove the metallurgy. The geology is not an issue. We're large, we're fairly average grade. The jurisdiction is not an issue. Can we prove it up? And in the pilot's a big stepping stone. Right, okay. I, I, the reason I ask that question is where I want to get to is I want to understand how much control you have over your own destiny at the moment. Obviously, the market with coronavirus and before that, the market reset and, you know, cobalt market itself is, like you say, opaque and volatile. And you're relying on finding the right strategic partners who may come in on a, you know, pre-sale equity basis or offtake basis. How much control do you feel in? The thing is, any, I mean, do you feel in control, first of all? Um, we'll need funding to get all the way to FID to investment decision. There's no, there's no doubt of that. So really where, where we need help is either self-help mm -hmm. for us to get our share price to reflect the value in the stock. Um, partners such as a commercial partner in, in precursors, partners such as on the sulfur side, um, we need their help. Any one of those partners could help us with the development pathway and therefore secure themselves a, a, a pathway to a project slot. The Cobb Partnerships business is there. So for me, it's it's fishing in many ponds for one of a really crude analogy. If you're fishing in many ponds and you've got an attractive product and a clear strategy to, to that um, ultimate financial investment decision, I think you're on the front foot. And and really the key message for investors is we're not, we're not on the back foot here. We're not um, you know, making do while cash flow is low or anything of like that. Um, we want to make 
a sample, commercial sample of this product in the next four months. We want to make larger scale sample of the product by early next year. Mm. We want to show the world what the largest new source of non-African cobalt looks like out of Australia. Okay, there's a good time actually to talk about the asset itself, Broken Hill. So what have you got? So as I touched on earlier, we've got a cobalt in pyrite um, ore body. And, and what makes our processing very simple is it's one metal, one mineral. Mm-hmm. And that contrasts to a lot of polymetallics or copper sulfides. Um, so first and foremost, one metal, one mineral. Secondly, we're a sulfide, not a laterite. So we don't have any of the complexities or capital intensities of processing lateritic ore. Thirdly, we're using existing technology. But what we're doing is, is using a smart application by just cherry picking what works in the industry and then bookending it for cobalt. And that's what's smart about us. We didn't invent any of this stuff. All we've done is pull it together. So effectively, being based in Broken Hill means that we've got an existing mining town of 20,000 people. So the skill sets are there for build, construction, and then ultimately operation. We've got a major railway line that passes through the tenement. So elemental sulfur, which we're making around 300,000 tonne per annum, is easy to freight. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got power. We're on the edge of the Australian um, national electricity market. So we've got access to wholesale power. We've got an allotment of water, both ground and surface water. And we've got a major highway that passes within four kilometres of the site and only 22 kilometres from Broken Hill. You think about it, the daily commute of our people is going to be around 20 odd minutes. So all of those logistic factors which dominate coastline for modern miners today are actually in place for us there. Yeah, okay. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, we did have a look and I think, yeah, you're in the, you're in the right place. You've got the infrastructure. There's not 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 too many questions around that. Um, if I may just finish off, just trying to understand a little bit about the management team. I know you've got a very um, active team there. Um, they are buying in the market, uh, which is always a good sign. Um, do you do you see? Um, do you, I mean, you obviously you're, you're encouraged by what you see, but do you see the cobalt market coming back anytime? soon or are you just buying for the future what what should new investors new and your shareholders uh be thinking about here this is when's the market recovery coming so let's look at the two influences there the cobalt price firstly i'm not here to tell you excuse me that the cobalt price is off and running i i personally believe the market will be well supplied for the next 12 18 24 months okay so i'm not suggesting that we're going to see a major movement there but that's a different thing to, to moving the share price. I, I think I've made the point, we don't focus on creating share price outcomes, we focus on commercial and development milestones. The saying we have internally is, if you do it well commercially and from a feasibility uh, point of view, the stock will look after itself. So I think we can outperform and outperform materially, even against a stagnant cobalt price, if we step towards production both metallurgical proof in the near term, updated economics, the full FS or bankable study by end of next year. And in, in terms of all the approvals, they're on target, will become a state significant development in Australia. And then both with government, federal government help, state government help, commercial partners for the project and the partnerships business over here, we've got sources of funding and indeed sources of new project outside of Broken Hill. It's conceivable that we'll go into business as a joint venture with some of these um, partnerships, uh, businesses. You know, I, I, I mean, I hear. Well, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, if you look after the commercial component, you know, the re- the rest should follow. But you've got to get that balance between delivering 
the business plan and telling people that you've delivered the business plan because you know we we've got um, some companies that we we we've uh, spoken to and they're sitting they're fantastic companies amazing companies uh, and sitting on a lot of cash but the market's not aware of what they're up to and as a consequence they're not seeing a reflection of their in their share price which I think is extraordinary um, but you know that's 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 down to you you know you've got to take care of business but you also got to keep talking to the market and letting letting them know what's happening so look Jay um, look, th- thanks for today I appreciate this and the previous conversation we've had it, it picks, paints a picture of a very robust um, capable management team and, and, and project um, I look forward to hearing more from you and, and more often please because it's, uh, it's always very enjoyable learning experience thank you Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for your time. And look, as we go through uh, the second half of this year with those milestones, yeah, I look forward to keeping in touch. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks again, Joe. We'll speak to you soon. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.